Take a Bible this morning, find John chapter 10. There is an outline you can follow along with some of the things we're going to talk about in John chapter 10. This morning as we come to the end of John 10, we reach sort of a natural breaking point, a natural transition spot in the gospel of John. The end of John 10 marks the end of Jesus' public ministry. And when we pick back up in a few weeks in John 11, everything moving forward is really in the last days, the last few moments that Jesus spent on earth, which means after this Sunday, we've come to a good place uh, for a break. And so we're going to take a a break after this Sunday, beginning next Sunday. We're going to do a nine-week series, a nine-week study called the character of God. And we're just going to walk through some of the attributes of God, some of the characteristics of God. These are the nine that we're going to look at. It's not the only nine you could look at, but we're going to talk about holiness, self-existence, sovereignty, goodness, faithfulness, power, patience, wrath, and love. And that series is going to take us all the way up uh, till we have our marriage conference at the end of February. Uh, The Sunday after our marriage conference, We're going to have Dr. Danny Aiken preach for us that Sunday morning, and then the following week we'll pick back up with John 11 right where we left off. Some years we break at Christmas, and we do a Christmas series or a Christmas study. This morning we're not doing that. We're just plowing through the Gospel of John, and the passage that we looked at last week and this week is a perfect fit for Christmas. And so let's jump in John chapter 10. I mentioned this last week, John 10, 22 refers to the Feast of Dedication. Sometimes it was called the Feast of Lights. Popularly today, it's called Hanukkah. And I told you last week that I wasn't going to say a lot about this particular feast, but it really ties in with what we're going to look at in John 10. So there's a lot of amazing pieces to this story, and I'm leaving a lot of them out. I just want to give you the sort of the big picture idea of the Feast of Dedication. You won't read about it, in the Old Testament. It hadn't happened yet. The event that it's based on hadn't happened yet. It happened in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It all started in about the year 170 B.C. 170 B.C. Alexander the Great had died. He had conquered the known world. He had died. His, his empire had been divided into four parts, and a Syrian quote-unquote general slash king had taken over what we would call the Promised Land or the Holy Land. And the general, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes, 170 B.C., he marched on Jerusalem. He loved Greek culture, and he tried for a while to get the Jews to adopt Greek culture and all of its religion and all the pieces of it, and they were resistant. And finally he had enough, and he marched on the city, and he conquered the city. It was, it was catastrophic for the people who lived in Jerusalem. Many of the people who survived the siege were taken into slavery, at least 80,000 of them died. 80,000 people died. Antiochus takes over the city, and he begins to make some changes. One of the changes he made is he said, it is illegal to own a copy of the Scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, what they called the Torah or the Psalms or the prophets. He said, it's illegal to own it. If you're caught with one, we'll put you to death. He said it's illegal, is now a capital offense, to circumcise your child. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that's kind of a big deal in Jewish life. And he said you can't do it. If we catch you doing it, we'll kill you and we'll kill your baby. 
around the temple complex, there was sort of a, a, a building structure and a, a big f- sort of facility there at the temple. He went in and he turned the outer courts into a brothel right there in the holy place at the temple in Jerusalem. Inside the temple itself, he set up an altar to Zeus. They began worshiping Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem. And then to top it all off, as if it wasn't enough already, he took a pig, the epitome of an unclean animal in the Hebrew faith, and he slaughtered it on the altar at the temple, completely desecrating the holy place. God's people were very low in this moment. They'd been conquered, they'd been defeated, they'd been put to death, they'd been sent into slavery. Insult had been added to injury. It was tragic. And eventually there was a a rebellion of sorts, right? There was a Jewish man. His name was Judas Maccabeus. We think of Judas as the bad guy, but at this point in history, they thought of Judas as the good guy, Judas Maccabeus. He had a great nickname. His nickname was the Hammer, Judas the Hammer. Judas the Hammer started an uprising. It was sort of guerrilla warfare at first, but eventually he had so much power and so much success, he drove Antiochus and his forces out of Jerusalem. He retook the temple precincts under Jewish control. They took down the altar of Zeus. They cleared out the brothel. They rededicated the altar and cleansed all of the things that had been desecrated, and it was a great, great victory. And when you read in John 10, verse 22, that at that time the Feast of Dedication took place, they were celebrating Judas the Hammer rededicating the temple after it had been desecrated. That's what they were looking back on. There's some great stories about why it was also called the Feast of Lights and how they would put lights up in the city, and the the origin of that story is, is fascinating. But what I need you to understand this morning is we pick up in John 10 and look at the end of this chapter is that when he says it's the Feast of Dedication, they're looking back, everyone in Jerusalem, and they're saying, hey, remember, remember, Antiochus marched in here and desecrated this place, and Judas the hammer saved us. He raised an army, and he ran the enemy out of town, and he rededicated this place to the Lord. That's what they were celebrating at this feast. Another piece of the puzzle I want you to see, we've talked about this in our, our walk through the Gospel of John, is in verse 24. He mentions the Jews. The Jews show up 71 times in the Gospel of John. Almost all of those references are to the men who are actively opposing Jesus and who eventually will have him crucified. When you read about the Jews showing up in John 10, it's not Jesus' friends, it's not his allies. It's not people who are coming to him with genuine question wanting to learn from him. These are his enemies, his sworn enemies, a group of people who have already made the decision that he needs to die. And what they're trying to do is trap Jesus in sort of a theological game of gotcha so they've got an accusation that will stick. These are not his friends. If you look at verse 24, the question they ask is really simple. The Jews gathered around him. And they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. That word surround is used in ancient literature to describe an army surrounding a city. That's sort of the tone of that word. They're surrounding like an army would encircle a city, like Antiochus would have surrounded 
Jerusalem, perhaps. And the question is, are you the Christ? That's yes or no. We'll read in just a minute, Jesus really doesn't answer their question. He sort of dodges. And it's interesting in the Gospels, Jesus rarely answers this question. He rarely just comes out to people and says, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah. You remember in John 4, he told a Samaritan woman, he told her that he was the Christ. Woman at the well in Samaria. He told his disciples privately as he questioned them, who do people say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ. And he said, that's right, God has revealed this to you. He confirmed it to his disciples. Most of the time he just dodged the question. He very rarely just stood up. He could have just stood up in the temple precincts and said, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ. Why didn't he do it? It was because all of the people, when they thought about the Christ or the Messiah, all they thought was, we need a bigger, better, badder Judas the Hammer. That's what we need. We need someone who's going to raise an army, kick out the Romans, rededicate this space to Yahweh, and give us our independence back as a nation. Jesus knew that's what they were looking for. That's what they were hoping for. And so when people asked him, he just sort of dodges the question, and he really doesn't have much to say. What he does says here does say here is fascinating. In John 10, Jesus quotes Psalm 82. Psalm 82 refers to God's divine counsel. We could really go down a rabbit hole. And I'll be honest with you, this is one of my favorite rabbit holes. I did a PhD dissertation on this. If you want to go down a rabbit hole, come by this week and we will go deep diving down the rabbit hole. We'll go as deep as you want to go. Psalm 82, here's what you need to know. In Psalm 82, there's a group of people, and they are referred to as, this is the Hebrew word, Elohim. Elohim. One group of people looks at Psalm 82 and says, this group of people being referred to as Elohim, this group of people are human judges. They're wicked, they're corrupt, they're not doing what God wants them to do as judges. They're perverting the law, they're not carrying out justice. They're human judges and God refers to them in Psalm 82 with this word Elohim. Another group of scholars says, no, that's the the spiritual divine counsel that God has created created spiritual beings, angels, demons, if you will, that God has put in positions of authority over the created order. So you've got two different interpretations. Really, it all ties back either way to the same point. There's a group of beings, either human or spiritual, in Psalm 82, and they're referred to with this Hebrew word, Elohim. That word can mean big G God, or it can mean little g gods. And Psalm 82 says these quote-unquote gods are doing these things. And Jesus quotes it here to make a point. Everyone's accusing Jesus of blasphemy. And he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. What, what about Psalm 82? He's making a, a rabbinical argument from the lesser to the greater. And he says, what about Psalm 82? In Psalm 82, there's a group of beings referred to as gods, Elohim. And the scripture can't be broken. That's not a mistake. That's in your scriptures. He says it's in your scriptures. And if that's there, here's the the Jewish rabbinical argument. Jesus says, essentially, how much more fitting is it that I be called the son of 
God, the son of Elohim. If it's okay for God to call that group of people Elohim in that context to make a point, how much more appropriate that you look at me, the one the Father sent, and that you recognize me as the son of God. That's not blasphemy. That's entirely appropriate. And we'll revisit that argument as we move through the passage. Here's the big idea, very simple, perfect for Christmas. Jesus is the son of God who saves his people. It's not blasphemous to call Jesus the Son of God. It's entirely appropriate to call him the Son of God. And he is the Son of God who came to save his people. So we're going to read the passage and then we're going to jump in. John 10, beginning in verse 22, the scripture says, At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him, and they said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father, For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Read that again. It is not for a good work we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world you're blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me, but if I do them, Even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this gospel, and we're thankful for these stories about Jesus, our shepherd. What important truths we see here as we celebrate Christmas and as we think about the birth of Jesus and the mission of Jesus and why he came and the hope that we have because Jesus was born at Christmas, the hope that we have because he died on a cross 
and he rose three days later. Father, this morning, give us eyes to see. We want to be your sheep. We want to be your people. We want to hear your voice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Two simple questions this morning. We're going to work through the answers. Question one, what does John 10, 22 to 42, what does it teach us about salvation? What does this passage teach us about salvation? There's four ideas I want you to see. We'll move through them rather quickly. The first is this. Belonging to Jesus precedes believing in Jesus. Belonging to Jesus precedes, it comes first, before believing in Jesus. And I just want to read verse 26 with you, and I want you to listen very carefully to what it says. John 10, 26, you do not believe because, here's the reason, you're not among my sheep. I think most of us would like to take the logic of that verse and flip it. If someone just sort of asked you, I think logically we would sort of describe it differently and we would say, wait a minute, wouldn't it be true that you're not among Jesus' sheep because you don't believe? As if the whole thing were up to you or me. That's sort of how our minds work. That's sort of how our logic might work. Jesus, I just want you to listen to how he says it. He just says it backwards than the way we might be prone to think about it. He says, you don't believe. He's looking at real people. And he says, you don't believe me, and I'm going to tell you why you don't believe me. It's because you don't belong to me. You're not one of my sheep. First, Jesus claims you as one of his own, and then you believe. That's the logic that Jesus lays out here. It's important as we think about salvation. Jesus claims you first. And then your response is believing. Here's the second truth you see. Believing in Jesus involves relationship. Relationship. Verse 27, at least the first part of verse 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. This is revisiting what we looked at last week at the first part of John 10, the good shepherd discourse. Jesus says, my sheep know me. They hear my voice. They recognize it. And I know them. This is not just knowledge about something. This is personal knowledge. It's more than factual information, but he's talking about a personal relationship. They hear my voice, and they know it. I know we all have caller ID on our phones, but you remember when somebody used to call you, and you had no caller ID, and you'd pick up, and they just said, hello, and you think, oh, who is this? I wish you'd just tell me who it is. Because I'm just going to ask you, and then you're going to have your feelings hurt that I don't recognize your voice. Maybe that still happens for you sometimes. Occasionally, someone will call the church office, and they'll buzz the call back to my phone, and there's no caller ID, and I pick it up, and someone says, hey. Well, hey. I'm glad you called. What's going on? Jesus says, my sheep, they know my voice. When I speak, they know. They hear it. It resonates with them. And they know me, and and I know them. There's there's a relationship here. It's it's more than factual knowledge. Look, if you want to truly celebrate Christmas, it's more than sitting in this room and saying, yes, I believe those things happened in history. It's saying, I believe those things happened in history, and I know 
Jesus and he knows me. He's my shepherd and I'm one of his sheep. There's a relationship involved in salvation. Thirdly, there's discipleship. Believing in Jesus involves discipleship. Look at the end of verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Right? Those who know Jesus, those who hear his voice, those who believe in Jesus, they follow him. Last week I had a, a great story. Charles Vivret came up to me after the service. We talked about Jesus as the good shepherd. Charles has been a member at our church for a couple years, and when he was younger, he served as a missionary in Jordan. We talked last week about the good shepherd, and he calls out to his sheep, and the sheep follow him, and Charles said, man, I saw that. When I was serving over in Jordan, I saw that. He said, right where I stayed, there was this one particular shepherd. He used to come by daily, and he had his sheep with him. And he wasn't driving them from behind. He was leading them in the front, and he was talking to them. He was calling to them. And there they were, just right in a row, like little ducks crossing the street, just lined up, listening to the voice of their shepherd, following wherever the shepherd leads. And he says, not one time in in watching this shepherd lead a sheep, not one time did those sheep get out ahead of him. They didn't break ranks. They just followed right behind the shepherd. That's what a disciple does. You don't get out in front of Jesus. You don't veer off and follow this guy or that guy. You just put your head down and you follow Jesus. You listen to his voice. You know him. There's a relationship there. And you're following him as a disciple. Lastly, fourth, Believing in Jesus changes eternity. Changes eternity. Look at verse 28 and 29. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. It's a gift. I give it to them. He says, they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And then as as if that wasn't hopeful enough, encouraging enough, he says, my father who actually gave them to me There's this group of people that belong to Jesus. The Father gave them to the Son. And he says, the Father, who is greater than all, no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We're both holding on to these people, to this flock, to these sheep. They won't be lost. Look, you can call this a number of different things theologically. Sometimes people say this is the doctrine of the eternal security of the believer. Sometimes people say this is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Sometimes people say this is the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. Whatever theological label you want to put on it, this is hope for you and me. This is hope. Jesus says, I'm going to give you life, and it is eternal. It lasts forever. It doesn't run out. It doesn't get taken away. I'm giving it to you. It's eternal life. Your eternity will be changed when I give you this gift. Jesus says, when I give you this gift, you will never perish. It won't happen. Oh, you'll die on this earth, but in the truest sense, in the realest sense, you will never perish. And he says, no one will take you out of my hand. And the Father is holding on to you as well. No one will take you out of the Father's hand. He's greater than all. It's hope. Jesus is saying, believing in me changes your eternity. It doesn't just change Christmas 2019, but it changes forever. Question two, what does John 10 teach us about Jesus? If we're going to have a relationship with him, it makes sense that we know some things about him. We believe some things about him. We embrace some things about him. And we'll start with this. 
Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Second person of the Trinity. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, uh, he or she drew a line in the sand? You ever heard that phrase? I'm drawing a line in the sand. Maybe your parents have said that to you at some point, or your grandparents. Hey, watch it, mister. Drawing a line in the sand. Don't cross it. You can look online, you can read in books about where that saying came from. I just want to give you one possibility. Some historians think this is actually the origin of that saying. In the year 168 B.C., there was a Roman consul, forgive my Latin, named Gaius Papilius Lanus. Gaius Papilius Lanus. And he had to have a meeting with a guy Oh, around Jerusalem, and the guy's name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Gaius Papilius Lanus approaches Antiochus Epiphanes, and he literally takes his staff and draws a circle around him in the sand. It's a historical account. Circles him in, and he steps back, and the Roman consul says to the Greek general, before you cross that line, I need an answer. Here's the exact quote. Before you cross the circle, give me a reply for the Senate. Here's what he meant. The Romans were flexing their muscles. They were the new kid on the block, and they were big and they were bad. And Antiochus was tough compared to the Jews, but compared to the Romans, not so much. And the Roman consul is essentially saying, look, you got a decision to make, and you got to make it right now. I'm going to take your answer back to the Senate. When you walk out of that circle, I need to know where you stand. Are you going to do what the Romans tell you to do? Are you going to submit to us? Or are you going to fight us? Are you going to bow up against us? I need an answer before you cross the line in the sand. He's calling him to make a decision. What I need you to understand is that when you read John 10, it's almost as if Jesus himself comes, puts a circle around you, steps back and says, now you know, and I'm going to need you to make a decision. Before you walk out of that circle, you're going to have to decide one way or the other. This is Trinitarian theology. I want you to look at John 10. The Jews, in verse 31, picked up stones to stone him. They're ready to murder Jesus. The last thing he said is, I and the Father are one. Jesus replies and he says, you know, I've done a lot of good works. I've done a lot of signs. I've done a lot of miracles. Which one of those are you going to kill me for? He knew that's not why they were going to kill him. He's just sort of poking the bear here a little bit. And they say, look, it's not because of the good works, verse 33, but for blasphemy, that we're going to stone you. And here's how they define it. Look, their theological definition of blasphemy is very, very good. It's solid. It's rock solid, you might say. We're going to stone you for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. It's an interesting way of talking about Jesus, isn't it? You, a man are making yourself God, so we're going to kill you. You and I know the backstory. You and I have read John chapter 1. 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with Him in the beginning, and He created all the things that exist in the very beginning. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. What an ironic way to talk about Jesus. You being a man have made yourself God when in reality Jesus is God who has willingly made himself human. They've got the whole thing topsy-turvy. Jesus responds with this quotation from Psalm 82. And essentially he's sort of toying with them. Maybe strange for you to think about Jesus doing that, but that's what he's doing. He says, whoa, 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 before you throw a rock. Psalm 82, I mean, that's straight from God. And in Psalm 82, God calls this group, you think they're angels, demons, you think they're human judges. He refers to them as Elohim. That wasn't blasphemy. It was okay for God to do that, to make a point in Psalm 82. How much more fitting, Jesus says, how much more fitting that the one the Father consecrated and sent into the world would be called the Son of God. It's not blasphemy. It's truth. This is Trinitarian language. All the pieces aren't here, but there's no other way to make sense of this. Let me give you a few quotes from some of my Baptist heroes. John Dagg. That guy was all business, right? You know that from his picture. He was a serious dude. He says, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are three persons in one divine essence. One God, there's three persons who fit into that category of God. What about James Boyce? He started the first Southern Baptist Seminary. He said this, God has revealed to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each with distinct but personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. There's one God. There's There's only one God, but Father, Son, and Spirit are revealed to us. We see it in the Scriptures. They're God. There's this three-in-oneness. That's sort of the the classic Orthodox definition. God is one in essence, three in person. This is way more than just theological math that you need to get square. This is the heart of the gospel. This is not just a man, Jesus, trying to work his way up to God's status. This is God himself come to dwell among us that he might save us. It's the Son of God come to give us eternal life. And the line is in the sand, or if you want to use our previous illustration, it's drawn around you. When you read this passage, you've got to make a decision. Like, pick a side. Either he is who he claims to be, Or he's crazy. Or he's an egomaniac. There's no third option of, well, he's a good good teacher. He said some nice things. But look, if he's wrong about who he is, he's not a good teacher. He's by definition a very bad teacher. That's the line in the sand. And you've got to cross it and make a decision. He is who he says he is. Or he's nuts. Make the decision. John's urging you this morning to believe. Now, some of you, I know what you're thinking. I know you guys. I know you people. Some of you are thinking, 
It is three days to Christmas. I don't even have all my Christmas shopping done. I got a crazy uncle who's going to be staying at my house this week. I'm not ready for that. I got to clean the house. Some of you are going out of town and you're saying, I don't have time for this. I got planes to catch and roads to drive on and I got plans to make. It's a busy week and we are talking about the Trinity. None of you would say this out loud. You're very respectful people, but some of you are thinking, I don't have time for this. I got a lot of busyness this week. I don't have time to sort through the three in one and Jesus and the line in the sand. That's, that's a lot. I just want you to understand, without this three in oneness in the Trinity and Jesus saying I'm one with the Father and all of that, without all of that stuff, Christmas has absolutely no meaning. None. Zero. Zilch. Nada. None. You can get together with family. You can spend time. You can make your favorite recipes. You can exchange gifts. You can do all sorts of traditional, nice holiday stuff. You can watch Buddy the Elf, and you can watch The Grinch, and you can do all that stuff. It means nothing. Nothing if Jesus isn't who he says he is. What we celebrate this week is a pivotal moment in the salvation that God has provided for his people. A pivotal moment. It's not the only moment. There's lots of moments. There's a moment in eternity past where God the Father plans the salvation of his people. There's a moment in the Old Testament times where God sends prophets like Isaiah to say things like Hunter read earlier that there's going to be a baby born and he's going to be a king and a counselor and he's going to be mighty God. There's a moment in redemptive history where the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary and creates life miraculously. There's a moment in the story where Jesus gives his life for us on the cross. And there's the moment three days later where he rises from the dead. There's a moment in history where Jesus will come back. And you think they wanted a bigger, badder Judas the Hammer back then? Just wait till he comes back. Bigger, better, badder, if I can use it in that sense. The king. There's going to be a moment in eternity when God is with his people and his people are with him. But every moment in that process sort of points us right here to what we celebrate at Christmas, that Jesus not just a man who tried to make himself God, but he's God who willingly made himself man. He's the Son of God, and he came to save us. The witness of John and the signs that he performed call you to believe. There's evidence, right? As you stand in this circle with the line around you and you, you deliberate, well, which way am I going to go? John's giving you evidence. He's giving you every reason to believe. The witness of John the Baptist. Verse 41, these people come and they say, look, John didn't do a sign, but everything he said about this man is true. God sent a witness. His name was John the Baptist, and the things that he said about Jesus were true. We've read those things. 
in the Gospel of John. The signs that Jesus performed. Look at this appeal Jesus gives his enemies. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, even though you're not sure, think about these signs. Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. You walk away from John 10. You walk away crossing the line in the sand. You can't walk out without making a decision. John's urging to you is that you would believe. Believe. If you walk out thinking, I'll delay the decision, I'll make it tomorrow, I'll make it next year, I'll make it after the holidays, I'm not sure about this, you've made a decision. The line is in the sand. John says, believe. I want to pray for you as we end.